In the first moment of Maite Alberti's film, The Eternal Memory, it's dark. We hear a door, some shuffling, and then a light goes on. The Chilean journalist Augusto Gongora is lying in bed, squinting, staring at the camera. His wife, Paulina, is there, but he doesn't recognize her. Here's the filmmaker, Emily Medavian. I mean, it's like the perfect sort of one-shot opening for a film like this. Lola, Lola. We immediately understand there's no filmmaker behind the camera. It's being shot sort of rough by the people who are in it just because of the nature of the image. Which is the kind of thing that often I think we think we want to avoid. But in this moment, it's so perfect because it's very intimate and we know that it's in their own hands. (laughs) But we don't know who they are. Maybe she's a nurse. And then she tells him that she's his wife. And it's absolutely perfect because it's exposition to who they are, but it's also exposition to the theme of the film, which is that loss that's inherent in the disease that he's suffering from. And we know now, okay, we're going to be in this very personal, very intimate space. And a lot of this is going to come from them, and it's going to be about their relationship and then expand out from there. This is Radio West. I'm Dr. Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about The Eternal Memory. It's the latest in our film series, our partnership with the Utah Film Center. We're going to be screening it tonight. We'll give you more details about that here in a moment. The film won the Documentary Prize at Sundance last year. It's just been nominated for an Academy Award. And it's this intimate portrait of the relationship between Augusto Gongora and his wife, Paulina Urrutia. He was a journalist who worked underground covering the Pinochet dictatorship. She is a famous actor in the country. And in 2018, Gongra was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The film is about the way they adapted the relationship and the meaning of love as he declined. We asked the filmmaker Emily Medavian to help us put the film in perspective for us. On one level, it's just the story of a couple where the husband is suffering from presumably Alzheimer's. And as that disease sets in, his wife, who he loves very much and who clearly loves him very much, Mm. is caring for him. And we're just going to watch this progression of care and loss. But then, because as we, you know, learn quickly, she's an actress, he's a journalist. This is Chile. The questions about memory and about how we make sense of types of grief, they all slowly become much more than just the individual personal story. So obviously, you know, Chile suffered extremely violent, you know, revolution. And here he is, a journalist who was part of that, who was reporting back in those days. So the film, I think, in a sense, is is part of a, a tradition, actually, of of other Chilean filmmakers who've been working on this question of memory in a a public sense and a private sense. And what's the overlap between how we make sense of our lives as individuals and how we make sense of our lives as, as a people, as a collective who've experienced traumas. What did you make about the, the, um, I guess the just sort of structure of the film? It's not just a sort of linear chronology, you know, beginning with the early signs of forgetfulness sort of descending into that hell of, you know, complete and utter lack of identity and memory. 
It's it's not that. It's almost like it has these segments. Mm. What did you make of the structure of the film? As someone who's, um, in addition to being a documentary director, also an editor, always looking at those things. (laughs) And and I think, you know, here you have what strikes me as the most logical and appropriate choice of structure, which Hmm. is that we're going to follow the relationship's evolution. And then inside of that, we're going to journey to various memories, to various creative expressions, to these moments that are going to speak to speak back into that that arc of this personal relationship. And so I would imagine that many people who watch it won't even question really the the chronology of his yeah. Alzheimer's because because we're on the emotional journey of the of that relationship. Right. And it's just that it's enriched by hopping to these other moments. But, of course, as an editor, I'm positive it's not literally chronological. Like yeah. it, 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 what, but it never is. So you may be able to notice that. Maybe the sort of mainstream viewer may not really even notice that or really care. I right? think it doesn't care. Yeah. Right? I think it's not even the question that we ask. And I've, you know, I've cut things that are chronological that even so – you know, we're being honest to a certain truth of chronology, but it's not literally chronological, right? This is the nature of cinema. And it's appropriate here because this is about memory. Mm. It's about imperfect memory. It's about how do you reconstruct? How does cinema, how does media, how do these things play a role in documenting and and salvaging and reconstructing memory? And this is what I mean about the sort of tradition, right? Yeah. That it's not just literally about the Alzheimer's, nor is it literally about the history of Chile. Right? Right. It's about this kind of really core question of making sense out of things that feel senseless. Yeah. You know, w- one of the things that I, I lost track of who was shooting what in the good way. I mean, I was aware enough to know that this is probably Paulina's shooting this because it you know, it wasn't composed very well. It's the lighting's not quite right. Some crappy phone, probably, right? Her camera on her phone or whatever. So, but I, I, it wasn't long before I completely lost track of that or really cared. And I would, I would dare say, some of the best stuff came from her. Yeah. Not what they did. I guess we should explain is Maite the Alberti who who uh, who made the film. Um, she's shooting some. She begins shooting it and then, of course, the lockdown comes, COVID comes and Augusto's wife, Paulina, has to start to shoot it herself. But what, talk a little bit about that, about the – because one of the things that – Alberti, she says it was a lesson in cinema. She said, my whole career, I was concerned about the perfect shot, the perfect image and this is not that but so profound and so intimate. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean – as people who love clearly love visual storytelling, who love images, who love sound, right? This is our medium. Of course we love it. Of course we want it to be perfect. But we also are, as nonfiction storytellers, we're engaged with something akin to a version of truth, reality, something we want to get at that has to do with real life. Hmm. And real life is messy and rough. And sometimes it is so revelatory to be in the hands of the person whose story it is. So for, I should say, like, the first film that I'm known for was shot entirely on cell phones by the people who were in the film. Um, so I got accustomed to editing that kind of footage, and I, I learned myself that same lesson that, you know, you're looking for the perfect shot, yeah. 
And and then you realize it's the shot that shakes, that tells you the body that's holding it yeah. is the body that's experiencing this story that is actually more profound than anything else. And who cares about focus? Because I'm so in it. I'm so with them. In a way that sometimes the perfectly composed shot by the filmmaker, it's almost suspicious. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's an interesting kind of strange affect of authenticity that's created by that image. Well, and, and it's also about accessibility. And this is something that Alberti said too. She said, I will never have that intimacy at 2 a.m. with people alone in the middle of the night. Right. Right. And so that stuff that Paulina captured, she would never be able to. Right. And rightly so. Right. right? Because we don't actually want documentarians sitting there all night with their camera while you sleep. You know, so so much of the story, though, of life happens in those moments when the filmmaker can't be around. And Mm so... The, the kind of classic trope of the very expensive particular type of hi, you know highly produced documentary uh, is just to find other ways to kind of force these moments mm-hmm. because we, we still want these story beats. But here the discovery is, oh, rather than forcing myself in and forcing my story beats onto somebody else's life, I can enter into this relationship with them, which is very complex ethical relationship, give and take, asking them to give you their life. But I'm also then the benefit of of that honesty is this material that mm. I couldn't imagine. So I always think of that as a kind of gift. You know, and as a filmmaker, I feel like my, my responsibility is, of course, to try to get the story right. And the gift is if I am, you know, kind of honest in this and can translate something through my understanding of the medium. And the gift I get in exchange mm. If I'm there honestly and for the right reasons with these people is they give me things that I wouldn't have made up if I had tried to write it. And they're that kind of authenticity that, you know, an actor spends years trying to get just right. And but every gesture is mm. exactly as it would be because it's so richly coming from that person. And so I think Paulina's footage of her husband, it's just it's just full of that. You know, it's full of all of the textures that feel make something so real and so not produced. Yeah. That's Emily Medavian. She's an assistant professor in the film and media arts department at the University of Utah. Also a filmmaker, she's directed a number of documentaries, including Bitter Brush and Midnight Traveler. We're going to be screening The Eternal Memory at the downtown Salt Lake City Library tonight at 7. For details, go to our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. There's this scene that I love in the film. It uh, Paulina takes Augusto with her to a rehearsal. And she sets him right there on the stage with her. The other actors are completely willing to allow for her husband, who doesn't quite know what's going on, to be there as they prepare and they do this performance. I just wanted to ask you about that particular moment because... Maite has talked about how important it was to see as a filmmaker. She said that the most important thing to her as a filmmaker was how Paulina integrated Augusto into her life Mm. and into society. 
Um, and this was like the, I think, again, kind of that perfect way to to describe the fact that she's going to bring him everywhere. Yeah. And th- and again, it's like there's that mirroring of all the layers of the story. So <laughs> it's the kind of caretaking of him and a caretaking of his memory <laughs> to not just shuffle him off to a corner and let him decline, but to, to keep him active and awake and as aware as possible. I feel like there's we, we can see <laughs> the effectiveness of that for his health. But then at the same time, it's telling us about her as a, as a, as an actress, mm. as a performer. And it's pointing towards, I think, this idea that the social and and the life that he's lived, right? He has never been a, a person who was alone. He loves his books, we learn, right? Yeah. He's never been a person who was alone in that sense. He's always been engaged, engaged with the world, engaged with where he's from. And so it's like would be the cruelest ending to kind of shuffle him away into a corner. So instead, she keeps him engaged, and then it fits perfectly in a film that's now going to jump back and talk about, you know, experiences that are, you know, probably familiar to people who are aware of Chilean history, um, watch any other Chilean films. But at the same time, they are now told as these personal stories, the personal that becomes the kind of the social, et cetera. So I think... Always that layering is what makes the film, for me, really, really rich. And it speaks beyond – well, I was going to say it speaks beyond the individual experience. But actually, I think as a filmmaker, maybe that's not what we want to say. We want to say that, like, the richness of each individual experience can always speak beyond in some yeah. sense. And so it's it's really modeling that. Yeah. But it's very specific to that one experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I feel often that the more specific to someone's experience something is in nonfiction – the more you dive into that like micro detail, mm-hmm. the more you can then go way back out wide and say something that feels richer mm. about our collective experience. I wanted to get your sense of the, I guess the how you think about the ethics as as a filmmaker. Um, Maite has talked about the ethics of how you how she was going to film a documentary that, of course, couldn't be more intimate. And Augusto and and Paulina couldn't be more vulnerable. So she's trying to figure out when do I stop shooting? Mm. When, what's off bounds? And one of the things she said was that they didn't have a set rule going in, um, that they just sort of kept the options open. And at the beginning, she figured, I'm just going to go and to the end. But then she didn't and yeah. things changed. How would you as a filmmaker and how do you think she's thinking about the larger ethics of something like that? This is one of those moments where I think it sort of calls on you as a filmmaker to to be your best self mm. because there is, of course, a market you are trying to sell this to eventually that would like the most sensational film. Mm. And what is sensational here? You know, maybe in some really gross way, we think it's the death at the end. Yeah. But it's so inappropriate <laughs> for, for what this is. And and so you don't know then because you're looking for the end. What's the end? Mm-hmm. How, what is the ending of this story? It's real life. It's going to wind. You, you, you may discover it as you go. So ultimately, I think it comes down to that being a whole human being in front of whole human beings who you're, you are asking to give you that intimate access and being willing to adjust and to listen to them. And gaining their trust and honoring it because the decision is going to be clear when it's clear yeah. to one of you. 
There's a um, moment when it's a, this remarkable piece of video that um, that Maite managed to get her hands on, and it was of this younger Augusto. He's talking about the importance of reconstructing memory. Not, he says, to be anchored in the past, but, as, as he put it, because it gives you a sense of the future, an act of knowing yourself, to know the problems and the weaknesses, and then overcome them, and then to generously face the future. So he's talking about memory. He's talking about reconstructing it. But he's thinking about it also in the collective sense. And I wanted to ask you about that because Chile and their political prop, you know, issues that, as you said, the revolution, um, the, the, the dictatorship of Pinochet, all of that is full, on full display in his, in his memory and the collective experience of Chilenos who went through that. You know, um, yeah. And so what do you make of the, the, the larger question of you know, emotional memory, collective memory that seems to be so so much a part of the film. Well, I have to admit, this, um, this is going to be my personal answer because I love Raul Ruiz very much. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. <laughs> and uh, he's in this film. Yeah. And he's in the film because Augusto was in one of his films. Yeah. And part of what I love about Ruiz is actually how he deals with memory in, in his – now, he's made like 100 films. So to be fair, I'm going to be selective here. But like it, his work, which – you know, spans Chile, and then of course he lived in Paris and and died in Paris. His work addresses this, and so he made a beautiful film called Time Regained, which is the last book of Proust. You couldn't have an author who's thinking more about memory. For sure. And so here you have this film that he made. That, talk about something very hard to adapt, right? Adapting Proust. Well, Ruiz was perfect for it because he's in this tradition of filmmakers who can see how cinema plays with time. Mm. And memory. And so there's there's no literalness. And, and Ruiz's way of talking about the past and what happened is to always sort of evoke it hmm. like this mirror, like this kind of dream. There's no sense of the factual there there. And so what's fascinating to me is now you have this journalist, this man who is all about documentation, right? Because what was being withheld on the on the nightly news during, mm-hmm. you know, these, these brutal disappearances was, was the reality of that. So it was like documentation really matters. They're both right, of course. And so what's wonderful is to see those two things put together. The idea that on the one hand, our medium, media can document, it can, it can speak back to a violent power that's, that is oppressing people, um, an authoritarian regime, right, that's, that's murdering its own citizens. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, that our medium can bend time, like the way that memory distorts, like the way that our reality is often bent uh, as a consequence of just the fallibility of human experience. And so mm-hmm. here, film, I feel like is giving us both of those side by side. And that's what I find quite quite beautiful and profound. She decides that she is going to stop filming when she realizes Augusto no longer recognizes himself. Yeah. That seems right, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think as in, in terms of that, the levels of loss, we yeah. see him coming and going across the film from being able to recognize his wife, remember his love, and be very sure of it, yeah. and not recognizing her. 
but that moment of not recognizing himself. Yeah. This is the, that's that ultimate loss. What would you show after that? But physical decline, and I think that would be inappropriate. Let me ask you finally. Maite Alberti has said that um, on paper, it seems like a tragedy. Like it seems like this tragic story, but she said, not in reality. This is what she said. She said, in all of the years I shot with them, I never left feeling sad. Hmm. So she talks about it as being joy, almost, in some ways. Did you get that sense? Because yeah. I have to say, it is profoundly sad. <laughs> it is. Um, but I like thinking that she never came away with that, that it, there was another dimension to it that I think... Is pretty I, I interesting. think the joy comes in that in the love. Yeah. There's a real tenderness and deep affection and patience and love. And you see that these are lives well lived. And I think there's something in recognizing that we will all come to an end, mm -hmm. right? And here we have a couple that have each of them lived good lives, lives that they can be proud of and who cherish each other and who are taking care of each other in ways that clearly run so deep. Mm. So I think for me that's where the joy comes from is, is the beauty of realizing that you can look back on a life and say, this life was filled with love, this life was filled with joy, with purpose, and it will end. That's Emily Medavian. Her films include Bitter Brush and After the Curtain. She's currently completing her fifth feature film. It's called Planet A. It's about a women-led science team on the final scientific expedition to Antarctica's Doomsday Glacier. We're going to be screening The Eternal Memory tonight at the downtown Salt Lake City Library. We'll get started at 7. If you need any more details, you can go to our website, RadioWest.org. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the documentary film The Eternal Memory. It's about the relationship between the Chilean journalist Augusto Gongora and his wife, the actor Paulina Urratia. Gongora was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and so the film is about how they had to adapt their lives but also their relationship as he stopped recognizing who she was. Now, the film is about Paulina as much as it is about Augusto. It's about the effect of dementia on the caregivers. We spoke this week with Melissa Mockley. She's a social worker with the University of Utah Cognitive Disorders Clinic. She works with patients and caregivers. And we began our conversation with her in the same way we did with Emily Medavian, with the opening scene of The Eternal Memory. It's morning. The light goes on. In that moment, he's obviously forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who she is. Hola, 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 hola. And he's not upset by it. ¿Qué pasó? ¿Qué pasó qué? I'm guessing he recognizes her on some level as a person that he trusts, however. He may not recognize her as his spouse, per se. <laughs> but obviously there's a connection. 
¿Qué hacemos aquí? There's a level of trust that maybe he can't label or communicate about, but it's there. She also recognizes that based on his reaction. And based on that, she might see this as a time that she can step into that place and help him remember or try to remember. In this moment, she's responding to how he's presenting. He's not upset. He's got a smile on his face. In all honesty, that scene was a little difficult for me because I know that many caregivers would love to have that experience. Let me be present with you. Let me move towards you. Let me reach out and help you remember me, help you remember who you are. And their person, spouse, parent, sibling, isn't able to reach those memories. And so they're not able to have the kind of experience that you see in that moment. So I loved that scene because they were able to be present with each other and that she was able to help him. There's a longing for the caregiver also, for the spouse. Do you think that in some ways that's one of the themes of the film, that it isn't just this benevolent caregiver offering something to this person who has dementia, but the needs exist for both? Absolutely. They're both impacted by dementia. The caregiver is grieving in their own right. They're watching this person change, lose access to memories, have difficulty communicating. But this is a gradual process for both of them. Both of them have needs for connection, for love. And for the caregiver, especially if it's a spouse, maybe it's their spouse that they have turned to for connection. They have turned to for love. They have turned to for support. So at this time when they need this maybe the most in their life, the person that they've gone to is now no longer available. So how do I then seek that? How do I then meet that emotional need that I have? And also continue to provide support and care and love to this person that I'm committed to. Let me ask you about the film itself. What did you make of it? What did you see in that in that story, in that relationship from from you know from your professional work? What were you seeing in that? Um, like how did you react to it? What did you see there in that film? It's a beautiful film. It also gives us a small glimpse into a caregiver's experience. Hmm. And I also think it's about their experience together. And also, I I appreciated even some of the technique of the film mm-hmm. and how they would show present day yeah. and then do the review back to his experiences, his times in front of the camera, his times reporting. Of course, even what he is reporting on yeah. and how that reflects with what he's experiencing now, right, that connection. So I appreciated even the technique of that. I think it gives an understanding of her perspective and his. 
we don't always get to hear what he might say or think. And again, he may not be able to express that, obviously. But the fact that she attempts to know what he's thinking or what he might be feeling and to respond to that. I think that that willingness to be present with someone. Before we get into some practical stuff, I wanted to ask you maybe some of the more abstract questions that come up in the film. Um, What do you, in your role, what do you have to understand and convey that goes beyond the kind of practical? Like what kind of insights do you have to understand for the more abstract part of it? You know, like what is love? What are the limits of love? How does – what happens when there's no memory to hold on to? How does that convey identity? What do you have to understand about that part of this? I think for him, he and for all of us, we have different identities, right? I think he identified as a news reporter, obviously. I think I identify as a social worker. I am a social worker. To get lower into that or more deep into that, however, I'm a human, and I work as a social worker. So if I attach to that, to that label, I think that can that can be unbeneficial to your journey in dementia. Hmm. Because sometimes I might meet with a caregiver who's their spouse, let's say that they were a doctor, and they might, be able, they might say something to the effect of, he's a doctor, he should recognize what he's experiencing. He should recognize this disease. He should not be in denial about it, right? Then you have other times where an individual might say, or a caregiver might say, yes, he worked as a doctor. So they're able to separate identity out from a profession and say this is still a person that has needs and ideas and thoughts and to value that person in their dignity and honoring that space of emotional need and how can I help meet that emotional need still, which then leads into love. What is love? So to me, love is an action. It's also a need. We have a need for others to reach out. We have a need for others to show up for us. That is the question I wanted to ask, actually. What is love? Which seems like that's incredibly challenging. But but go on. What 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 is love? Yeah, what is love, right? What is love with dementia? What is love when my person is experiencing dementia? But before you get to dementia, what is love? Love can take many forms. I still think it's an action. Hmm. And it's nurtured. You say love is an action. To me, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's nurtured by experiences. Hmm. It's nurtured by give and take. It's a willingness to to offer and also receive Hmm. to me. Does love necessarily connect to a past? Because you see these moments in the film all of the time where he sees her doesn't recognize her, but it's like he's falling in love at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it made me think, gosh, maybe love doesn't have to connect to some larger story or even to a memory that it is about a moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and in that moment, is it love for him? He's in the present. Maybe it's attraction. (laughs) Maybe it's that there's positivity. This person is smiling at me. They're personable. They're inviting. They're safe. So For- we're seeing trust. Um, we're seeing um, attraction. It may not be something deeper that we're 
maybe hoping for. I guess it could be. Yeah. It could mm. be. It could be all of the above. And for her, her love for him is what draws her back, is what brings her to be present with him. Mm. And she holds the memory. He may not have access to it in that moment, but she does. Mm. She holds that. And so she's able to help him connect to things that he loves. Music, the camera, Mm. his friends, his family. She can help him connect to those things, maybe in a different way, adapting to that. But because she knows what his loves have been and she loves him, she's able to help him connect to those things still. What is your role? What, what, do, you, what do you do? What, what's, the, what's the part that you play in all of this? So I'm a social worker, yeah. and I offer counseling to individuals and caregivers impacted by dementia. So if an individual is uh, early on in the diagnosis, in the more mild stage, and mm. can discuss maybe some of their thoughts and emotions about what they're experiencing, then I can meet them in that space and yeah. discuss that. However, many times, the counseling takes place more with the caregiver, discussing their own emotional responses and ways that they can communicate, connect better with their person who's experiencing this. What does a person with dementia, what do they want? What do they need when they talk to you, at least when when they're in that stage of the condition? And they're able to convey to someone what they're – what is it that they say they need or, or, or want? I mean there's this moment when Augusto – and I, he, he's confused. He, he, he doesn't understand where he is of course and it, it, so it made me wonder, is he looking for safety or something to – like what is it that they say when they are lucid or able to be able to talk about it in that way? What do they say they want or need? They may not even be able to express wants or needs accurately or in in an in-depth manner. However, they need positivity. (laughs) They need someone to be in that space with them, maybe to help them to grieve, maybe to encourage them. Many times they'll say, what should I be focusing on? What can I do? What can I do to fight back against this? I'll encourage them to take their medication. I'll encourage them to stay healthy and active. I'll encourage them to stay engaged physically, socially, mentally. If I can offer them tools and things to help them where they're at, sometimes they can focus on that and say, you know what, this is what I can do. And so I'll encourage them, maybe we can't change circumstances, but this is what you can do. You were mentioning um, being engaged socially, the importance of of social engagement. And we really see that in the film. There's this scene, this moment when Pauli, who is – she's an actor and she's in the process of preparing a a play. And so she brings Augusto with her and he's on the stage with her. And these actors are performing this musical number – And Augusto was right there. And he's not quite sure what's going on, but he's sort of engaged in it. Talk a little bit about the idea of integrating these, you know, the people you're caring for into your life. Because that seemed to really illustrate that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And and she was in a position that she could integrate him into her, you know, work environment, 
I loved that scene. I loved that he had no inhibition. He was just feeling the music, and he was up there moving to that. And so, yes, integrating. And also, not every caregiver has that space to do it in the way that she was able to, right? And yet, do they need times for integration? Absolutely. And connection and music. We know the power of music when it comes to positivity and sometimes connection to memory. Uh, maybe a, an experience that, that they've had with a certain song. or Which an, we also see in the film. Which we see in the film, right? And so, yes, an individual needs that. They need time to connect with others in a way that's comfortable for them. Yeah. He's more of an extrovert, right? So I'm guessing because of that, and she knows that about him, he can be in that space with her and, and have no feeling of anxiety. He can just... He's just there in the moment, right? And and her coworkers, her fellow actors and actresses are also able to let him be in that moment, to welcome him in and to not worry about staging and if if he's blocking their or or you know causing any interference with their scene, they were willing to be in that space and to support both of them, right? Not every caregiver has that yeah. space. And yet we can try to help our person connect to that in a way that's comfortable for them. And in the, the with the um, avenues that they have available to them, whether that's through family or community resources, having an individual stay connected socially is is important. What does a caregiver need when they talk to you um, beyond just a hug? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like beyond just sort of reassur- you know reassurance. And yeah. but what do they? What are your conversations like with them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what does a hug represent? Connection, support, Mm -hmm. validation, Mm -hmm. permission to say this is hard. Many times they don't give themselves that permission. So giving them that space also to discuss things that maybe they don't feel comfortable talking to a friend about, talking to family about. There's a loyalty they feel. Mm -hmm. They want their person to maintain that dignity. And if we're going to talk about issues of incontinence, maybe they don't want to have that conversation with their, with a family member. So coming into that space and talking with me about some of these difficult topics, it gives them that space for someone to offer understanding and, again, validation. And also, what are some tools we can do to help? What can we offer with communication strategies? Or are there avenues in the community that we can offer you for dementia-friendly activities, Mm. places that you might be able to go with your person? We offer the chance to connect with other caregivers, right, and the impact that that can make for a caregiver. I'm not alone. I have empathy for other people that are going through this, Mm. and they can offer that to me too. It's powerful. There's a moment in the film when um, Augusto is agitated. Um, He's upset. He doesn't understand what's going on. And Paoli reaches out to offer him a hug. And he doesn't want it. No, 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 no. Yo quiero ver a mis amigos, el Cristóbal, la Javiera. Because he's not sure who she is. And doesn't understand her motive or what's happening. That was such a sad moment because he 
he didn't because in times past I'm sure he has taken the hug. Yeah. He was willing to be comforted by her, but now mm-hmm. he he was at a point where he didn't and he couldn't and it just made me wonder how do you talk to a caregiver about showing up when the person that they love and have you know been there in the in the most um extreme moments i guess yeah absolutely don't even know who they are yeah absolutely well and and going back to what does a hug represent then to him possibly a threat mm. possibly just a concern who is this stranger trying to hug me and is also possibly dismissing I'm being dismissed. My Mm. concerns aren't Mm. being heard. Mm. I don't know who you are, and you keep telling me I should know who you are. I don't believe you. The trust is now in jeopardy, right? Because he seems to be saying, don't give me this hug thing. That's not the thing I need. I don't even know who you are. Right, exactly. I'm I'm confused. I'm frustrated. And so in those moments, some of the... Some of the strategies we'll tell caregivers is to let go of expectations of what they should know, what they should believe, what they should remember right now, and be present with where they are. If they're telling you, I don't recognize you, and I, and I, I want to see my children, I think he mentions that. Where are my children? Sometimes we'll tell a caregiver, validate that. He's in a place of insecurity. He's in a, a place of feeling confusion and frustration and insecurity, right? So validate that. Augusto, you seem concerned. I know you're worried about your children. Let's We can reach out. We can call them. Something to try to de-escalate the moment. Mm. Mirroring their words or reflecting them back to them sometimes can help de-escalate because they're feeling heard instead of dismissed. Many times an individual will say, I want to go home. And a caregiver might say, you are home. We've lived here for 40 years. And they'll bring out pictures and they'll try to orient that person to the caregiver's reality instead of the caregiver joining them in that moment of a painful reality for both of them, for that matter. So sometimes using their words, I know you want to go home. And maybe talking about in that moment that you can tell that they're that they're worried or that they're frustrated or... So it's about empathizing with them. Empathizing and joining them maybe from an emotional side. Joining them. And not logic. Hmm. In that moment, they've lost their ability to have logic and to reason. So what's the emotion there? Insecurity, fear, frustration. Validating that. Do you tell caregivers to, if they can, and I know this is probably a privilege, but find a way to take a break. Absolutely. Many times our caregivers think they have to be the only one. Yeah. I know my person best, which is true. You do know your person best. And also you need a break as you're dealing with dementia. And of course the person's dealing with dementia. It's okay for you to have a pause from dementia. They wish they could too, right? And they would want you to have that pause. They would want you to take care of yourself, cultivate friendships and connection, those things that are nurturing to yourself. Your person would want that for you. But the caregiver guilt is so prevalent. Hmm. And so it can keep people from doing things for themselves, even taking a break. And yet absolutely, respite, a break, 
and using family and friends, if possible. Not everyone has that. And then finding out what's available in the community. What's, you know, if we have gaps in, in that, we, how, what are some resources to fill that in and to help? Which, again, is part of my role, mm-hmm. trying to help someone connect to that and giving them permission to connect to that. You're not abandoning someone by expanding the care team. You're the manager of this team, right? And so you're helping your person connect with other people and giving yourself that pause that's needed for your own well-being too. Let me ask you about one more um, scene in the film. It's at this time when Augusto sees himself in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And he cl- clearly doesn't recognize himself. In, in fact, he tries to, you know, ask his reflection mm-hmm. questions. ¿Cómo te llamas tú? ¿Cómo te llamas tú? What do you make of that moment? Is this a significant moment? Is is the the time when they no longer recognize themselves? It, it seemed like a marker for n- not the end of life, but the end of some sort of coherent self. Yeah, maybe a transition point. Or we've reached a new yeah, level. Yeah, what do you make of that this. time? Yeah. It's not a time per se. It's something that can happen. And then they might have greater clarity and now they recognize themselves. <laughs> and then it can happen again. <laughs> Sometimes it happens, there's a pattern to it. Maybe it's a certain time of day when the brain is tired and the body is tired and we might recognize ourselves. And then the next morning, we recognize ourselves again. So there's, it, it's a swaying maybe even that this can happen or not <laughs> happen. Not everyone experiences that. I would say in that moment, he might know who he is, but he might be remembering himself or identifying as a young man. Maybe I'm in my early 20s and this older person in this reflection who is smiling at me, seems friendly, I think I'll engage with him, right? I'm a news reporter. That's I engage with people. I connect. I initiate. Hmm. So we watch him do that. Uh, And it was a very positive experience for him in that moment. Sometimes that experience is more upsetting to a caregiver than it is to a person hmm. because the caregiver is concerned. Why are they doing this and what is going on? And, and just having some anxiety or another layer of grief with that. But for the person, if they're okay having this conversation, it's okay. Now, sometimes for a person, it's not okay because I don't recognize this person and it might be a threat now to me. They've come into my personal space, and who is this person? And, and so you might have different responses from, from a person experiencing dementia, but it's not always a transition point. It's part of this gradual, ongoing process of dementia. I guess that's the thing, finally, to always keep in mind or tell a caregiver is that they need to account for not your own reaction the world that your person mm-hmm. is living in. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It's beneficial if they can. Yeah. Right? If you can be present. That's not easy. That. Absolutely not. <laughs> right. right? For any of us, for that matter. Right? Yeah. Um, if you can join them in their world, if they're safe, and if you've taken steps to make sure that they're safe and their needs are taken care of, it's okay to join them. It's okay to join them if they think it's 1954 and they're interviewing someone or if they're dancing or 
if in that moment they think that maybe you're a parent instead of their spouse. It's okay to join them in that moment and be there and talk to them about that and be curious about that. And it's also okay to have your own emotional response of grief or sadness and for that to be nurtured and for that to be comforted. It's just not always beneficial to do that with the person with dementia. It's beneficial to find someone else to nurture that and to comfort you. Because they're, logically, we might understand this is dementia, this is causing this. And yet maybe it's not my mind or my, my intellect that needs comforting, it's my heart. So for the caregiver, it's okay to seek help, whether it's emotional or whether it's help for caring for my person. There's help out there, and you're not alone, and there are people that want to help. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for asking these poignant questions. That's Melissa Mockley. She's a social worker with the University of Utah's Cognitive Disorders Clinic. We're going to be screening The Eternal Memory tonight at the downtown Salt Lake City Library. You can get details on our website, radiowest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.